Good morning. It's good to be with you. As Pastor Mike mentioned, my name is Shane Whalen, and I'm the pastor of student families here at Rivermont. I must just say maybe this is encouragement to know pastors are human too, but when I put my stuff up here, I'm down there the whole time I'm thinking, is my stuff still up here? And yes, it is here, as if it's going to like just disappear. But uh, it is here, which is good, and my Bible and, and my, my notes and everything. So uh, pastors worry about such things as well. So um, this morning, we're going to take a break uh, from uh, our study on the Psalms. Uh, I was originally scheduled uh, to preach uh, on a theme from Bible school, from Vacation Bible School, but uh, Vacation Bible School was canceled. So Pastor David uh, gave me the uh, freedom to pick whatever passage I wanted. Uh, I guess depending on your personality, it's a blessing or a curse. Uh, But I went with uh, Titus uh, chapter 3. So you can open up your Bibles uh, to Titus uh, chapter 3. And as you're doing that, a brief look at some of the background uh, of this epistle Uh, The book of Titus was written by Paul, and it's one of his pastoral epistles. And a good question is, who is Titus? And uh, Titus is mentioned in the New Testament. He's mentioned 13 times. Uh, He traveled with Paul, we believe, on a second and third missionary journeys. And Paul was writing to Titus in Crete, uh, where he left him. And Paul wants Titus uh, to finish... Uh, the work of organizing the church, uh, dealing with uh, false teachers, and uh, to give instructions on how Christians should live. Also, the thing I love about Titus, uh, three chapters, and it's structured in such a way that each chapter uh, breaks into a nice section on uh, doctrine and duty. Uh, Chapter 1 deals with doctrine and duty in the church. Uh, Chapter 2 covers doctrine and duty in the home. And where we are this morning in chapter 3, it talks about doctrine and duty in the world. So church, home, then world. And what we want to look at this morning, what we'll learn is how we should live, why we should live this way, then what hinders us from living this way. So let us read uh, Titus chapter 3, verses 1 through 11. This is God's holy, eternal word. Remind them to be submissive to rulers and authorities, to be obedient, to be ready for every good work, to speak evil of no one, to avoid quarreling, to be gentle, and to show perfect courtesy toward all people. For we ourselves were once foolish, disobedient, led astray, slaves to various passions and pleasures, passing our days in malice and envy, hated by others and hating one another. But when the goodness and loving kindness of God our Savior appeared, He saved us, not because of works done by us in righteousness, but according to His own mercy, by the washing of regeneration and renewal of the Holy Spirit, whom He poured out on us richly through Jesus Christ our Savior, so that being justified by His grace, we might become heirs according to the hope of eternal life. The saying is trustworthy. 
And I want you to insist on these things, that that those who have believed in God may be careful to devote themselves to good works. These things are excellent and profitable for people. But avoid foolish controversies, genealogies, dissensions, and quarrels about the law, for they are unprofitable and worthless. As for a person who stirs up division after warning him once and then twice, have nothing more to do with him, knowing that such a person is warped and sinful. He is self-condemned. Let us pray. Almighty God, we are grateful for this morning that Your mercies are made new every morning, that we can gather as Your people uh, to worship You. Lord, thank You that You have given us Your Word. And oh, we need Your help. Oh, Spirit, come, open our eyes, open our hearts. Help us to understand these things. Lord, from from You and Your Spirit, we cannot. And Lord, I ask that, that I would decrease, that You would increase, Lord, that the words of my mouth and the meditation of all of our hearts would be acceptable in Your sight. O Lord, our Rock and Redeemer. It's in Christ's name I pray. Amen. The first thing we want to look at this morning is this. How we should live. And Paul begins with the phrase, remind them. And this tells us that we should already know these things. This is not a new teaching. It's not something new. But all people are prone to forget things. So what is Paul reminding us to do? First, be submissive to rulers and authorities. Again, this is not new. In in 1 Timothy, uh, Paul tells us to pray for kings and those in high positions. In Romans chapter 13, he says something very similar about submitting to rulers and authorities. So God has placed... Every dictator, king, president, governor, mayor, ruler in their position. And we are to respect and submit to their authority. Boy, oh boy. As I know the last several months, we've been challenged and tested in this area. The opinions and, and feelings about the decisions that are being made by our government leaders in regard to all that has happened, that all is happening, is all over the map. So what are we to do? Paul tells us simply that we remember that God has put leaders in their position of authority and we are called to submit and obey. We can make excuses, we can post Facebook articles, but at the end of the day, if what we are asked to do does not go against Scripture and does not violate what God says, we are called to submit and obey. The call to submit to and respect authority is ultimately a heart issue. Just as a child rebels against their parents' authority, we, adults, that's myself included, rebel, moan, and groan about the authorities placed over us, and the laws and the guidelines that they give us. And if we think for us the last three months or so has been hard, and the leadership terrible, I remind you of this. Paul is writing this when Nero was the emperor of Rome. And if you know anything about Nero, he was no friend 
of Christians. There are many historical accounts of what Nero did to Christians, and none of them are good. For example, Nero wanted to rebuild Rome. So what does Nero do? He sets the city on fire. And the Roman historian Tacitus tells us that people started to figure out that it was Nero who set the fire. So Nero shifts the blame. He puts the blame on Christians. And an intense season of persecution ensued. Tacitus further informs us that Nero used Christians as living torches to illumine his gardens at night so he could be entertained by chariot races, among other things. Nero's cruelty knew no bounds. He was an evil man. And before writing this letter, Paul had been imprisoned by the Roman authorities. Yet Paul is telling Christians, then and now we must submit and obey to the rulers and authorities that have been placed over us. And to show that God uses all things, while in prison, Paul was able to to develop relationships and share the gospel with Roman guards. And this is how the gospel was able to spread far and wide because these converted soldiers, they would go back to their families and their friends and they would share the gospel. And the good news of Christ went forth. The way that we talk about, the way that we treat, the way that we respond to rulers and authorities has gospel implications. Cooking classes often teach people that often teach that people eat with their eyes first. When the gourmet chef prepares food, he or she must be careful about plating, paying attention to color and shape, arranging the food so that it is attractive. Appearance is the first experience of a meal. We eat with our eyes. In Titus chapter 2, verse 10, Paul reminds us that in everything we must adorn the doctrine of God our Savior. Our faith is seen by the eyes of unbelievers before it is heard from our lips. We live before a watching world and people are watching Christians to see how that they respond in all situations. Is what people seeing in your life, do they find that attractive? Are people hungry? Do they desire to feed on the bread of life by what they see? Next, in verse 2, Paul turns, our, uh, turns his focus to our relationships with everybody, especially unbelievers. We are told to speak evil of no one, avoid quarreling. Positively, we are told to be gentle and courteous. These new Christians on Crete lived among neighbors who did not share their faith and had to deal with the Romans on the island. I'm sure they heard mocking and experienced mistreatment from people who saw no value in godliness, no benefit in following this man called Jesus. That sounds familiar. With these difficulties, Paul tells the Christians in Crete, to not only respect those who rule over them, but also relate to non-believing neighbors with kindness, gentleness, and care. When we are gentle and courteous, it is helpful in our evangelism. But let's be honest, this is so 
We can be frustrated by the erosion of culture. We may become bitter and angry when people respond badly to our efforts to be kind. But God makes no exception. We are called to extend the same respect and kindness to our brothers and sisters in Christ and our sinful neighbors. Paul gives good advice on how to do this in Romans chapter 12, verse 10, when he says, Outdo one another in showing honor. Assuming the best and seeing the best in others is not natural. That is not our default mode. It takes much prayer, the work of the Holy Spirit within you. The Puritan Thomas Watson once said that a humble Christian studies his own infirmities and another's excellencies. Wise words as we think about how we should live. It's how we should live. Secondly, why should we live this way? Because we remember what God has done for us. Look at verse 3 in your Bible when we read this. For we ourselves were once foolish, disobedient, led astray, slaves to various passions and pleasures, passing our days in malice and envy, hated by others and hating one another. In a shorter but very similar fashion to Romans chapter 3, if you're, if you're familiar with that passage where Paul tells us in Romans 3 that no one is good, that no one seeks God, that all have turned aside, that our throats are open graves and on and on, where Paul just lays it out there for us. In its true sense, this is us. This is how we are. This is us. And it's much different than the hit NBC show from the last four years. Paul was good at feeding us some humble pie. We could be so, so prideful. Nothing is better adapted to subdue our pride than the Word of God. Especially when it is shown that everything that we can use against people can be turned and used against us. This is what Paul does when he says, For we ourselves were once. We are really good at pointing fingers and mocking unbelievers who are still deaf to the gospel and blind to what Christ has done. So before we get haughty, self-righteous, judgmental toward the unbeliever, remember we were right there with them. And it's easy to think at this moment, well, I, I was not like that. I wasn't, I wasn't that bad before I became a Christian. And it is true that not everyone sins to the worst degree. Maybe you had a good upbringing where your parents taught you to be considerate of others and, and to do unto others as you would have them do unto you. Perhaps circumstances restrained your sin and God's common grace was more prevalent in your life. But we need to remember that God ultimately sees the heart. The underlying motives we have for our actions. And also as Hebrews 11.6 tells us, without faith it is impossible to please God. Paul tells us what we were once like. So there should be a dif- difference and the life of a Christian compared to an unbeliever. And that's what we see in these first three verses. Notice the contrast. Submissive. 
foolish, obedient, disobedient, ready to do good, enslaved by evil, kind and peaceable, malice and envy, gentle and courteous, hating and hated. A few days ago, I was with a group of people and somebody was sharing how their dad became a Christian in his early 30s. And he was telling us what his dad was like before he became a Christian. And most of us know this man post-becoming a Christian. And after the person shared what their dad was like, someone spoke up and said, that is totally different from the person that I know now. Yes, praise God. That is the Gospel. That is what happens So how is it possible to get from one lifestyle to another? What happens? That leads to the heart of chapter 3, verses 4 through 7. In Greek, this is one sentence. It's most likely taken from an early Christian creed. It it all hinges on this in verse 5, where Paul says, He, that is God, saved us. Remember what God has done. Christianity is all about salvation. And our salvation, our saving, is all because of God. This is not a 50-50 partnership. This is not 99% God, 1% us. It is 100% God, 0% us. What is the source of God saving us? Verse 4. The loving kindness of God our Savior, which is referring to Jesus. This is a great verse to remind us that Jesus was not only man, but He was God and is God, appeared. That's the incarnation. Verse 5, His own mercy. Verse 7, we're justified by His grace. So the source is the kindness, love, mercy, and grace of God. God took the initiative. He rescued us from our hopeless situation. He saved us. The foundation of this, again, verse 5, Paul says, not because of works done by us in righteousness, as if foolish, disobedient, envious, hateful people could do something righteous. No, we needed mercy, and that mercy was poured out on us richly through Jesus Christ our Savior, as Paul says in verse 6. We needed the perfect life the atoning death, the resurrection of the Son of God in order for God to save us. And that is exactly what happened. This is the foundation, the cornerstone. And the means for our saving is the Holy Spirit. You have God the Father, Jesus the Son, and the means, the Holy Spirit. Verse 5, the washing of regeneration and renewal of the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit comes upon us opens our eyes, allows us to see our our sin, our need for Jesus, then regenerates and renews us. This is not a repair job. This is a total gut job. This is God taking our heart of stone out and giving us a heart of flesh. This is moving us from the old self to the new self. God bringing us from life, from death to life. God giving us the righteousness of Christ. And something I learned when I was in college... I think is a great application for us, and I try to do, is when we share the gospel, we give our testimony, 
there's one pronoun that we are so prone to use. I. And I'll give you my testimony for as an example. I used to share my testimony like this. When I was 15 years old, my uh, youth pastor, he took me out to dinner. And after dinner, he asked me if I wanted to accept Jesus Christ as my Lord and Savior. And I thought about it, and I prayed about it. Then I decided on my own. I, I asked Jesus to come into my heart, and I became a Christian. I, 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 I. But now when I share my testimony, I try to do it this way. When I was 15 years old, a youth pastor, he took me out to dinner at a restaurant. And after dinner, he shared the gospel with me. And in that moment, the Holy Spirit came upon me and opened my eyes and my heart and the weight of my sin was upon me. And God had mercy upon me. And Savior. And God saved me. It's a simple application. Someone says, yeah, let's, give, let's give credit where credit is due. God saved us. And the goal of God saving us is in, uh, verse 7. That we may become heirs according to the hope of eternal life. We will receive a full inheritance when the new heavens and the new earth begin. We forget this. We blow it off. We doubt it. Perhaps we don't even believe it. But Paul says that this is a trustworthy saying. Why? Because as Paul tells us in Titus chapter 1 verse 2, God never lies. That's why it's trustworthy. So what is the evidence of salvation? Verse 8 tells us that we need to insist on these things. What things? All that Paul told us in verses 4 through 7. Because that will help us devote ourselves to good works. Remembering what God has done for us is the motivation for good works. So we need to preach the gospel to ourselves. We need to remind ourselves that God saved us. In doing so, we are ready to obey. Be gentle and courteous, as Paul tells us to do in verses 1 and 2. And notice that these good works are excellent and profitable for people. Good works benefit others. Not simply the church, but all kinds of people. The authorities over us. The unbelievers around us. No, we are not saved by works, but they are the evidence that we have been saved. The good news of the gospel calls us to action, as Pastor David reminded us last week. James tells us that faith without works is dead. Jesus says you will know them by their fruit. Good deeds are the evidence of salvation. That's great. We're ready to go. But what hinders us from living this way? There's many answers to that question. But here specifically, Paul addresses... A specific hindrance in verses 9 through 11. As I mentioned earlier, one of the main areas of focus in this letter is false teachers. So in these last three verses, Paul returns to addressing them, knowing that they can prevent us from living how we should. Why? Again, because we lose 
focus. We are easily distracted. Our salvation and remembering what God has done for us and good works that proceed from what Christ has done are the things that we need to be focused on. Again, verse 8, these things are excellent and profitable for people as opposed to the unprofitable and worthless, foolish controversies, genealogies, dissensions, and quarrels about the law. And during this time when this was written, family myths and genealogies, uh, uh, family trees were important. Locating one's family within Jewish history was a basis for an individual's religious authority. Along with the ongoing date, uh, debate about the Old Testament law and its place in Christianity. It's a great reminder for us because again, we are so easily distracted. We forget the gospel. Our controversies and dissensions may not be related to genealogies and such things as Paul was writing about, but we still have plenty of false teaching in present day America related to the law. And the most widespread of this is the prosperity gospel, the health and wealth gospel. The churches, and I use that term very, very loosely, of Joel Osteen, Creflo Dollar, T.D. Jakes, Paula White, and Benny Hinn, to name a few, are full of thousands and sometimes tens of thousands of people who are being led astray. Straight to hell. That is what is happening because of this false teaching. The teachings of these false teachers can be summed up this way, according to Stephen Hunt. He says this, quote, Health and wealth are the automatic divine right of all Bible-believing Christians and it may be procreated by faith as part of the package of salvation since the atonement of Christ includes not just the removal of sin, but also the removal of sickness and poverty. End quote. And truth be told, the cross and the atonement for sin are rarely, if ever, mentioned. Did you hear that though? Health and wealth are the automatic divine right. That is what it's being taught to thousands and thousands of people across our nation. Why do they feel this way? Because oftentimes the law and gospel are reversed. I just explained that our motivation for good works is because we live in response to what God has done for us. But prosperity gospel teaches that obedience leads to blessing. They say obey in order to get. And this obviously flies in the face of what Scripture teaches. The Lord owes us nothing and yet has given us everything in Christ. All the more reason to remember what God has done. And when Joel Osteen or one of his followers tells me to become a better me or you to become a better you, I don't know about you, but I'm not brimming with with confidence when I read how the Bible describes man. And when I look deep into my heart, the things that I do and the things that I think about and the things that I often say. I'm not good. You are not good. Christ is good. And Him alone. So how do we respond? In verse 9, Paul tells us to avoid such persons. We must not work hard to satisfy them. They are not worth our time and effort. That's, that's a helpful verse because sometimes 
when these debates arise, we, we feel shame and we're drawn into controversy and debate. It would be shameful not to engage. No, it's not shameful at all. It is wise not to engage in, in prolonged debates and arguments about such things. How, how do we handle these false teachers is laid out plain and simply by Paul. Verse 10 says this, As for a person who stirs up division after warning him once and then twice, have nothing more to do with him. Why? Because one battle will always lead to another, and one dispute will give rise to a second. And this is a ploy of Satan. He entangles good and faithful pastors and Christians and distracts them from what is important. And that the most important thing is all that God has done for us in and through the Lord Jesus Christ. False teachers get one more warning than another, then we have nothing to do with them. As Paul tells us, they are warped and self-condemned. Let's stay focused on the gospel and how God saved us. Stephen Covey, he's an American educator, author, businessman. And one of his best-known quotes is this, The main thing is to keep the main thing the main thing. How true for us as the people of God. What is the main thing? That we are sinners and we deserve the wrath of God. So God sent His Son to live the life that we could not live. To die on the cross for us. And to be raised on the third day so that we could be reconciled to Him and live forever. Our only hope of salvation and eternal life comes through faith and trust in the Lord Jesus Christ. So let us keep the main thing, the main thing, and remember what God has done for us through Christ. Let us pray. Oh, Father, You are good, and You are worthy of all praise and honor and glory. Lord, thank You that You saved us. Thank You for the mercy and the grace that You've extended to Your people. And Lord, I pray that you would lead us and guide us, that we would be motivated by the Spirit working in us to do good works in response to what you've done for us in Christ. We love you and praise you and give you thanks for this day. In Christ's name, amen.